Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries in this ineffable universe we call home. Today on the show, we're going to get into the Nephilim connections to Babylonian mythology, but mostly Sumerian mythology, straight from the Sumerian tablets written in cuneiform. Pretty much all the lore that I've gone over in the Nephilim episodes prior to this episode is all based off of this Anunnaki mythology from Sumeria. The Anunnaki lore is the inspiration for Nephilim lore. This is where the biblical references to the Nephilim come from. This is where the books of Enoch come from. Everything from all of the civilizations throughout all human history, all of that Nephilim lore comes back to the Anunnaki. And instead of going straight into the weird alien stuff, such as Zechariah Sitchin, I figured I'd go over the more mainstream version of the mythology and the more widely accepted version of mythology without all the sci-fi and futuristic and, you know, the like alien genetic manipulation stuff. How the Anunnaki are actually space aliens who came to Earth and genetically altered the proto-humans to create what we are today, that stuff. I'll specifically be going over the Zachariah Sitchin stuff next episode. So buckle up because it's time to get weird. I'm your host Tim Hacker and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Sumerians are responsible for much more than the first sophisticated written language. Well, from what we've discovered so far, at least. Documenting history means an ever-changing narrative, because there were other civilizations too, but the mainstream focuses on Sumeria because of a lot of the firsts that come from there, as can be presented in a scientific manner backed up by the powers that be. There is just so much evidence for Sumerian civilization, it cannot be denied. Much to the horror of Orthodox religions at the time that these uh, Sumerian truths were being discovered. The Sumerians have the first written laws, what we would call science to an extent. The concept of time within 60 seconds and a minute, complete with clocks, schools, astronomy, astrology, yes, the entire zodiac is there, as well as schools, priests, teachers, authors, poets, math, medicine, music, divorce, and the protection of women and property, legal citizen rights, legislature. They had boats and basically everything you'd think is associated with civilization and all of this as the supposed first human civilization. We somehow went from primitive hunter-gatherers to highly advanced technical beings with 
a lot of sophistication and culture, I guess. And out of nowhere, we just got all this insane knowledge and technology, um, pretty much setting the stage for the rest of the ancient world. Pretty interesting stuff. And according to the narratives that we've been following, the Sumerians are one of the first civilizations to spring up after the cataclysm, the flood, the deluge, the destruction of old earth, the antediluvian world. The Sumerians could very well be the remnants of those who fled from Atlantis from certain points of view I've already gone over in past episodes. And the Sumerians' spiritual beliefs influenced every civilization that came after it in the Near East. This is a culture that directly inspired the Nephilim and Watchers found in the Bible and the books of Enoch. The legacy of the Sumerian gods, the Anunnaki, is undeniable. The ancient cuneiform tablets I mentioned in the intro are where we are told of these Anunnaki, among other sources, but sadly we are missing a lot of the tablets to complete the stories. There are even contradictions concerning the Anunnaki within the Sumerian texts themselves. Not to mention all the different conclusions researchers have drawn, both mainstream and fringe, as well as the completely bizarre. Zachariah Sitchin is a well-known fringe writer on the topic, with many people outright dismissing his conclusions and research. Well, many people from the mainstream, I mean. He has tons of devoted followers taking everything he says as objective fact. I've referenced Sitchin a lot during these Nephilim episodes as well as talking about him many times before on the show, mostly in reference. And while I too dismiss many of his notions, it doesn't mean he does not have useful information to offer us. It's easy to dismiss things that don't go along with confirmation bias or ideas that rock our personal beliefs about the world. But there is always so much more to things than they appear at face value and plenty of secret truths to read between the lines. In my early 20s back in the day, I got super into his books. I was fascinated by Zachariah Sitchin's mythology he created around his translations of the Sumerian tablets, and had never really encountered anything like it before. I read the books and became pretty much obsessed for a while, but eventually I started to see the mistakes and where opinion was input instead of logical conclusions and connections that didn't make sense after analyzing them. And there was a bit of a fall from grace for a bit before I realized that all that stuff didn't matter, and his writing still had a lot to offer. Just because a lot of it should be taken with a grain of salt does not mean that there isn't gold nuggets in there to harvest. And what draws a lot of people to Sitchin is that he paints a fantastic epic complete as a space opera with sci-fi technology and interstellar travel. But he wasn't alone in doing this because there were actually many writers to produce work asking humanity, what if our gods of antiquity were actually advanced aliens? Eric Van Daniken comes to mind and his best-selling Chariot of the Gods, David Icke in more recent times, Michael Sarian, but there are many other writers to also contribute their theories. Some more legitimate than others, of course. There's always that person out there who preys on the naive for a quick buck. But it is an objective fact that the world's dominant mythologies do come from Sumerian mythology and the Anunnaki. So, who are these Anunnaki? And what do they have to do with the Nephilim? 
Well, let's explore that. But just remember, concerning ineffable topics like these, no one has the answers. In modern times, a lot of people just believe that we evolved from apes. However, this is actually just scientific theory and there's still the missing link. It's a theory that people just accept as truth given to them. Yet, the missing link has never been found, and there are still countless mysteries concerning our DNA. While natural selection is objectively factual, the origin of modern humans remains unsolved. And many dogmatic beliefs claim that this is proof humanity is separate from nature and made by God. While others hold strong that we're evolved from apes despite it being a theory, and some just shrug and don't have an opinion one way or the other. While others have come to more interesting theories. But in order to understand those theories, we have to have an idea of what the Anunnaki are all about. Countless cultures adopted the Sumerian gods and made them their own, complete in many cases with their own spin. This includes Babylon, Assyria, Akkadians, Phoenicians, and the lands of Canaan, as well as pretty much the whole Mediterranean world, including Greece. One thing that all of these ancient cultures have in common is that they are ruled by 12 gods, all these gods associated with celestial bodies, and are all analogous to one another, spanning cultures globally. So let's start at the beginning with the Sumerian creation myth. The myth that would go on to influence countless others. It begins with the primordial mother, which is more so a reference to creative energies in general. Always remember, for the most part, ancient writings are to be taken metaphorically, not literally. But in the beginning, there was nothing but shadows in the dark sea, the primordial sea where dwelt the goddess Nemu. In modern terms, this can be thought of as a sea of energy. But then the primordial sea gave birth to the universe, Anki, who was heaven and earth in one. Anki then made the air god Enlil, who split the universe in two, making An, the god of the sky, also known as Anu in Akkadian, with the other half being Ki, who became the goddess of the earth. And a quick disclaimer, there are different names for these gods depending on what civilization, so it can get kind of confusing, but just bear with me. Enlil and Ki would go on to have a child together named Enki, who was the god of water and the lord of the whole universe. He took some water from the primordial sea and created the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, making the soil fertile and rich so that animals could be introduced to the area. Many other gods and goddesses would soon be born and lived in great cities in the land between the two rivers. Kind of an interesting thing to point out here is that Enlil and Enki are actually brothers in a lot of other versions of the myth, with Anu being their father. Which back in the day when I was researching all this kind of confused me a little bit. But um, Enlil lived in the city of Nippur along with other deities, including the young goddess Ninlil whose mother warned her to be wary of bathing in the local canal as Enlil would want to have his way with her if he ever saw her naked. This motherly advice turned out to be sound because the air god saw the young goddess 
and he immediately tried to seduce her. However, when Ninlil refused his advances, Enlil was not deterred. And after obtaining a boat, he went over to where she was and raped her, impregnating her in the process with the moon god Nana. The other gods were furious about this and exiled Enlil for his crimes, forcing him to head for the underworld. As she was now pregnant with his child, though, Ninlil followed him. But the pair soon would realize, independently of each other, that if she continued, her unborn baby would be forever doomed to live in the underworld. Not wanting this, Enlil disguised himself three times, once as a gatekeeper, once as the man in charge of the river leading to the underworld, and the third time as the ferryman. Each time Enlil and Ninlil encountered each other, he told her that she must sleep with him so that he can impregnate her with the child to reside in the underworld in Nana's place. Each time, the young goddess reluctantly complied, realizing that it was the moon's destiny to go heavenward, not into the depths of the underworld. And at this primordial time of existence, only the gods existed. All the hard work such as digging ditches and farm labor had to be done by the minor deities and they toiled at this lowly work for 3,600 years before finally deciding that they'd had enough. So they essentially went on strike, burned their tools, and surrounded the temple of Enlil in fury. And Enlil was actually fearful of the angry mob, so he sought the advice of the other great gods, especially An and Enki. I'm just gonna refer to An as Anu from now on because it's easier for me to remember that way. But together, Anu, Enki, and Enlil came up with a plan and decided to create a new race of beings to act as servants to the gods and do all of the hard labor for them. They selected a god who was blessed with great intelligence and then sacrificed him. They used his blood and structure to create entities in his image. The birth goddess, Ninma, mixed his flesh and blood with clay, after which... All the gods spat in the mixture. Enki and Ninma then took the mixture into the Room of Fate, where she recited magical incantations over it until finally, she pinched off 14 pieces of clay. She then set seven of the pieces to the right, which would become men, and the other seven to the left, which would become women. Next, the birth goddess impregnated herself with the new creation, and when nine months passed, she gave birth to them. Ninma declared that from that day forward, when a human child was born, celebrations would last for nine days. And after this celebration, this nine days, the sexual relationship between a husband and wife could resume. When man had been created, the gods celebrated with a feast and much drinking. Enki and Ninma, both being very drunk, had a debate and while the birth goddess declared that it was she who decided how well each individual human would be formed, Enki countered that no matter what affliction she bestowed on a person, he would be able to find a place for them in society. Upon hearing this, drunken Ninma wanted to prove him wrong, so she created humans with various ailments and disabilities. Though each time Enki, true to his word, found a place for them in society. These ailments included a man with shaking hands who became an attendant to the king a blind man who became a storyteller, 
a man with twisted ankles who found a place with the metal workers, a barren woman who was given the task to oversee the queen's weavers, a person with neither male nor female genitals who became an aide to the king. And being outsmarted by Enki really pissed off Ninma, who gave up in defeat. Enki then reversed the challenge and created a premature baby who had shaky hands that prevented it from putting food in its mouth, a crushed spine, brittle hips, and bad feet that meant it could not walk to the fields, and also gave it the unfortunate affliction of a closed-up anus. And Enki then challenged Ninma to find a place in society for his deformed creation. However, she couldn't do so as Enki did. So she cursed Enki, realizing if people were born like this too often, they would stop worshipping her. In a bid to ease the wrath of the birth goddess, Enki admitted to her that while he can create beings, without her they would be incomplete and misshapen. But together, they could create even greater beings. So from that day forward, Enki and Ninma worked together on the form of each human being and on his or her place in society. The first humans, as just stated, were a pretty big mess, with the gods obviously still figuring out their technique. These humans could not reproduce, and they couldn't really experience consciousness other than in a very low and primitive way. They could take orders though, and so were put to work. But we can think of them to be analogous to cavemen, that could understand things to a degree, like tools and things needed to know to conduct mining and agriculture. Though not on their own, they would always need to be herded and directly guided by Anunnaki overseers. And this way of things went on for thousands of years, where Enki would keep on recreating, or I guess we could think of it as cloning, these prototype human workers as servants. And as I've already said, this creation myth does have different versions, but this is the overarching narrative. People have analyzed the crap out of this myth, and you can see how sci-fi fans or ancient astronaut theorists have a field day researching this stuff and mixing it with the lore we've already gone over in the past episodes concerning the Nephilim. These are the first Elohim, also called Anakim, Shining Ones, Nephilim, the Anunnaki, named after the god Anu, the original pantheon, always ruled by the 12 major gods. No more, no less. Not saying that there is an objective connection here, just saying going along with our narrative, these were the inspiration for the later Elohim. And there's always lesser gods, such as the Ben Elohim, but the 12 rule. And among the 12 are seven of the inner circle. Sumer comes from the Sumerian word Shumer, which literally means land of the waters. It is the ancient biblical land of Shinar, which translates to place of the shining ones. But its later Akkadian name translates slightly different to maybe land or country of noble kings or noble lords. The Sumerians referred to themselves as the black-headed people. And a lot of our language in reference to Sumerians actually comes from Akkadians. But they're actually all of these ancient 
the ancient world's language for all of the ancient world's languages are connected, but Shinar translates to place of the shining ones. El, the original name for God, as in the Hebrew God, El translates as shining, which is a Semitic word found around the world that means the same thing. The Anglo-Saxon word elf means shining being. The old Irish alilil also means shining. Old Cornish el means shining. And in the Inca civilization, ella means shining. Babylonian elu means to shine. With this uh, shining theme being phonetically found in all of these ancient cultures. The Anu, a nomadic and little known tribe in Japan who appear Caucasian, share a similar language with the Basque people in the mountains of Spain bordering France, their name meaning to shine. The Tuahadadenan, as I mentioned in Irish lore, also means the ones that shine, and they're supposedly from Atlantean culture in some lore. I could go on, but you get my point, I'm sure. And just like in the Bible, there are different factions of these shining ones with earlier and older generations, as well as them creating two separate races of human beings, one that could breed and one that could not. So who were these Elohim or shining ones? And why were they in charge of the watchers? And why would they enslave humanity? Another question is, why don't we have pictures or texts of them being worshipped as a pantheon? Well, according to the culture of those times, that's because they were worshipped only individually, with one shining one per city as overlord. These individual rulers have been considered to be the watchers to some researchers, and they were distinguished from the rest of the Anunnaki. All of these translations to describe these beings as the Shining Ones intrigues me. And it makes me wonder just where did Stephen King get his uh, idea for the mystical psychic power in his books called The Shining. There are many fables of these Shining Ones, these great builders, architects, and magicians from across the ancient world. And much of this myth of the Watchers is found to be within the tales of wars and merging of peoples across the Middle East, between Canaanites, Egyptians, Sumerians, and even Asian civilizations. With the, with the overarching consistency of these Shining Ones being leaders. When the Sumerians eventually began to decline, they were conquered by their longtime rivals, the Akkadians who, like I already said, copy-pasted the Sumerian lore and put their own spin on it. But then came the more famous Babylonian civilization to conquer them, and also absorb the Anunnaki gods and have their own spin on things. And this is important because there are lost remnants of the Anunnaki myths lost to time in the Babylonian myths, with the Babylonians summing up a lot of stuff in far more simple terms and skipping stuff and mixing things together. And we'll get into the Babylonian myth right after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles.
Hi there, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. Babylonian myth, we're going to find a lot of similarities with the Anunnaki myth and the creation of the universe. It starts off stating that in the beginning, there was the dark sea, and then two entities of primordial chaos came into being. Apsu, representing the masculine energy, and Tiamat, representing the feminine energy. Apsu was the primordial essence of fresh water whereas Tiamat was the primordial essence of salt water. Their offspring would later be known as the Anunnaki gods. Though later the Anunnaki became rowdy and Apsu became very frustrated with them to the point that he couldn't rest and he eventually decided that he wanted to kill his children. However, his primordial counterpart Tiamat was not okay with the idea, was absolutely horrified by the idea and did not want to go along with it at all, wanting to protect her children. Though luckily, the Anunnaki had a warning and actually knew of Apsu's intentions ahead of time, giving them a chance to plan against it, which resulted in Apsu's death. With Anki being pretty much the ringleader and the one doing the heavy lifting in executing their primordial father, and though originally she did want to side with her children and protect them against Apsu, this murder of her husband infuriated her. She formed an army of loyalists and set out to avenge the primordial god's demise. Some refer to these entities in her army, this army of loyalists, as demons, and could indeed be looked at in that way. There's different ways to translate this story and they may not necessarily be demons in the way that we would think of demons but she takes this army and starts a war on the gods the army led by her mighty champion the powerful entity known as kingu and it turned out to be a war that they were not prepared for at all there wasn't too much that the gods could do the anunnaki suffered defeat after defeat after defeat 
and things looked pretty bleak in their war against their primordial mother. That is, until Marduk came into being, a powerful young god with many eyes, and he offered to slay Tiamat if they made him the king of the gods. They did so, and the following battle is described as a pretty crazy supernatural conflict. But in the end, Marduk wins, and he breaks up Tiamat's body to create the material earth and the sky. If you remember from the previous episode, there is a missing planet in our solar system. Some scientists think was destroyed super long ago and became the asteroid belt. And they call this planet Tiamat, whose water was sent out into the solar system and asteroids and the like, and eventually fell to Earth, turning our planet into a water planet. Though that is all very much not factual. It's all theory. In any case, they did honor the name of this possible planet as Tiamat in her honor, which harkens back to this legend. Anyway, Marduk then creates humans for a similar purpose as the pure Sumerian creation myth, to be a labor force and servants of the gods. The defeated right hand of Tiamat, Kingu, is then taken and sacrificed, and they use his blood to create humanity. And with Marduk taking complete control over the Anunnaki, he assigns some to stay in the heavens and 300 to watch Earth and the humans, with Nibiru as the crossings of heaven and Earth, so that the gods of above and below must wait on him. Following our narrative, many of the descendants of these early first gods were probably, or could be considered, I mean, the Ben Elohim, the sons of the gods, the sons of the Shining Ones. Some of the tablets of this story are broken and pretty much non-existent too, but we got enough to put together this narrative at least, or this summary I mean, because there's actually a lot that I left out of the Babylonian creation myth. It's just, uh, I'm just summing it up nicely. However, the interesting stuff according to what we're interested in is Marduk straight up assigning some Anunnaki to stay on Earth, similar to our Watcher lore. A similar earlier version of this myth also has Anu, Enlil, and Ninurta as the heroes, with Marduk completely absent because he's the patron of Babylon and a Babylonian deity. But it is common for these shared cultures to replace the heroes of these stories with their own city's deities. And as civilizations conquered one another and the world got smaller, there was more competition to be the quote-unquote main god, while keeping the themes of the original mythology at the same time. Now, many names would change going down the line, including Anunnaki original names being changed and whatnot, but they are pretty much the same thing. Same thing, different name. I just realized that I think in the last episode, I accidentally made a mistake and referenced Baal as the Babylonian god instead of Marduk. So yeah, I make mistakes. In my head, I knew what I was talking about though. Anyway, there's many similarities that are the same thing, but being different like Enlil and Baal or Enlil and Yahweh. Like I said in past episodes, Baal being one of the main gods in the Canaanite Elohim pantheon. 
The Watchers are also considered possibly to be the military wing of the Anunnaki in some translations, and are depicted as fighting other gods on some occasions. Even like uh, Greek gods, for example. It's theorized that if the tablets were complete, it seems the Anunnaki who fought with Tiamat against Marduk and his gods were most likely the ones designated as the Watchers to stay here and watch over humans with the notorious Ben Elohim Azazel, most likely there at the celestial battle. It doesn't mean all the Anunnaki stationed to Earth were, but probably many were, along, going along with our narrative, remember. Azazel knew a lot about warfare and was keen on teaching humanity mainly on warfare. Though that's all speculation based on information we have from the tablets and our Watcher lore. So speculating and making these connections between different Nephilim and Watcher lore is pretty fun, but it's really just speculation based off the information we have from the tablets that remain. We may never know the whole story unless more tablets are found in a cave somewhere or something, which I'm sure is going to happen eventually. However, the tablets we have, there are two distinctions of Anunnaki that could be assumed to be Nephilim from the Bible the Agiyi and the Anuna. Now, the Agiyi story contradicts itself in Sumerian mythology. I mean, this is thousands and thousands of years old civilization before the rest of the world even figured out how to use the wheel after all. But Sumerian mythology often contradicts itself because it just existed for such an extended period of time. It's like how different Egyptian mythology is from the beginning to end. It's almost not recognizable. Although similar, with overarching themes, but these things tend to evolve on their own in civilizations that are very old. There's versions that the Agigi dwelled in the heavens and the Anunnaki in the netherworld called Kur in early Sumerian culture. It was a place that humans couldn't go, they couldn't get to. The mountains of Kur are just north of Sumeria. However, at the same time, the realm is explicitly like stated to be um, separate from the mortal one, so it doesn't make sense. Let's just think of it as in as in a way that we can understand, similar with like Greek mythology and entering the underworld through physical plane. Let's just think of it as an alternate dimension. But this alternate existence is confirmed in later texts to just be the entrance to a realm deep within the earth, only accessed through the mountains of Kur, similar to the river Styx. And it's said that the Anunnaki had sprawling underground cities and underground passages and whatnot. And there's still a lot of people who consider the Anunnaki themselves to be mainly underworld deities. However, the Anunnaki stationed on earth by Marduk could be these Agigi, or most likely these Agigi if we're taking some of these tablets literally. But the 300 Agigi would descend to interact with humans. And remember, the word Nephilim is not derogatory in Hebrew, as some may think. It actually means the fallen ones, as in a heroic fall, such as the gods who were defeated in the battle against Tiamat, or things of that nature, like an honorable fall. A heroic fall. I'm kind of getting off track, aren't I? 
This is not legitimate Sumerian mythology, but speculation by scholars connecting these Agigi and the Watchers. I mean, also the Watchers are the ones who come down, not the Nephilim in Hebrew lore. Nephilim are just the offspring of the Watchers and humans. But with these Watchers, there were very few of them, and they watched Earth from the heavens, similar to the Agigi. And if you're confused, I know it's a convoluted mess, and I'm probably not putting it together the best. But just keep in mind that the Anunnaki are not as unified as one would think. And there are many rival factions. They'd even have their cities at war with each other consistently. Like, lots of warfare between Anunnaki and Nephilim. These ancient accounts do not talk about gods as myth, but as real historical accounts. Which is the way they saw the world. But we will hopefully find more tablets soon to get to possible conclusions concerning the Enuna, Agigi, Watchers, and uh, Nephilim connections. But until then, we just gotta work with what we got. Though some people think that the Anunnaki creating humans to be servants is actually evil. And that can be true to an extent, I guess. But there are, according to the tablets at least, there are Anunnaki who care about humanity. In a way, they care about humanity as children. Like Enki, for example. The Sumerian version of Genesis is very similar to the Christian one. It's because it inspired it. And the Sumerian version of Genesis is complete with the Garden of Eden, though spelt with an I, not an E, and the bread and water of life being the original version of the Tree of Life. And it's interesting how Eden was a real earthly place to the Sumerians, and not like another dimension or in heaven or anything like that. It was very earthly. It was an area. To Zachariah Sitchin, it was like, uh, oh, I'll get into that later. But uh, the Watchers especially were given the task of the military defense of Eden, and it's mentioned by name in the Epic of Gilgamesh. This Eden is put forth as the possibility of Atlantis by some, just FYI. But I don't know about that one. It could be possible. I mean, the episode on Atlantis myth, I forgot to put that in there. But in any case, with the loss of the Igigi as a workforce and none of the self-aware, sterile humans easy to replicate, the gods seemed good to go. However, Enki never stopped his experiments with Ninma. And they eventually created new humans in secret. Enki created what the tablets call Adamu, which is humans capable of understanding knowledge, wisdom, and able to reproduce all on their own. These humans would slowly be released in secret and had massive potential compared to their earlier counterparts. Potential to the point, if properly developed, could even be like the Shining Ones, could even be like the gods, which really pissed off Enlil. Now, I left out some depictions of the Anunnaki, including one where they appear reptilian, with scales and wings, and this is going to connect to the Gnostic stuff to an extent. So in the biblical Eden, Adam and Eve walked in paradise. But in the Sumerian texts, it was not such a great place for them. And here is a cryptic as hell quote concerning humans and the Sumerian Eden. 
The gods came in strength from beyond time. They were carried one day by the rebellion of the universe. Pretty much the gods were not the kindest to them. The Anunnaki were not the kindest to the humans. Well, not all, but Enlil and many others treated them like no more than tools, I guess. With Enlil basically being the Old Testament god and uh, analogous to Yahweh in the future, as I'll present you. But there was a goddess in the Garden of Eden that was close with Enki, his sister Ninma, who, as I've already gone over, is incredibly important concerning the creation of humans along with Enki. She's often portrayed as reptilian, which is fascinating. In the Eden story, she is snake-like humanoid. She's not always portrayed as reptilian though, so don't get me wrong. However, especially her appearance in Eden, she is reptilian which may remind you of the snake in the Garden of Eden, according to the Christian and uh, Hebrew version. But she was working with Enki in the garden and helped wake up humans, giving them sovereignty over their consciousness and offering them the bread of water and knowledge, which is analogous to the fruit from the Bible's tree of knowledge of good and evil. However, they did not give them the tree of life. But when Enlil came around, he came to the conclusion that they were far too close to discovering the Tree of Life. And when he saw that they were sentient and could reproduce on their own and were capable of higher knowledge, this pissed off Enlil so much he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and swore that they would never be like the gods, with the Shining Ones forever guarding against giving them entrance to Eden ever again. Which I guess actually wasn't so bad since they were treated as tools because now there was a whole group of humans that could grow on their own and grow in consciousness and civilization all on their own but there were still the earlier versions of humans that were doomed to slavery however the humans that were granted knowledge and wisdom by Ninma and Enki they were totally okay with being kicked out by Enlil and left the Sumerian Anunnaki settlements altogether these awaken where humans would stay unified and even create a settlement on some islands far away from Anunnaki dominance. This is the legend of Mu from the Sumerian epics, also known as Pacifica or what was it? And Lemuria. Yeah, though obviously a different version of the myth. Mu would flourish under the guidance of Enki and the other gods who considered humans their children the king had the title of Ra, supposedly, though this is all fragmented to all hell and mostly strung together through speculation. But these, uh, but these are the pyramid builders, supposedly, and their civilization directly under the guidance of Enki. At least until the island was messed up from volcanoes. There were survivors, though, and in this version, the Lemurians established what we would call Atlantis. Although, honestly, where I got this information from, I don't consider the most credible, but I thought I'd throw that in there. It is legitimate, though, from the Sumerian epics and myths that the humans did go off to establish their own settlement. And you can see how this kind of has to do with the Gnostics from last episode, because Enlil is basically the Demiurge, and 
this god is the enemy of humans that would later go down in history as the one true god. It essentially paints Yahweh as Enlil, whereas the serpent goddess and Enki were just trying to help humanity, but also it's an interesting side note that the word Satan is found in Sumerian, which predates all the other versions of the supposed origins of the words or anything like that. And Satan in Sumerian means administrator as a title. So it's not a specific person, it's a title of a job. In a way, the God of the Old Testament could be Enlil from a certain point of view. And when I get into the Zechariah Sitchin stuff, that'll make this will be more apparent. Though that was like 5,000 years later or something, the Hebrews wrote their version of this tale. But Enki basically succeeded in his goals, granting humans the ability to be independent. And if you take these ancient tablets seriously, it explains a lot of messed up stuff God does in the Old Testament, like commanding genocide and the patriarchal tyranny against women. This is mostly Enlil. I could go on into more detail, but there is a reason people get confused about how the God of the Old Testament and uh, the God of the New Testament seem different, which I went over in last episode with the Gnostics, so I don't really want to get into that again. But essentially, it all boils down to this spiritual battle between Enlil and Enki, and humanity being pulled each way in the middle. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm a Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? 
If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. What is it about hot, fresh, black coffee that is just so divine? I love it. I need it. Enki and Ninma, also called Ninhursag in some cultures, have another interesting tale. And it takes place in paradise, though it's not called Eden, but an area north of it known as Delman. And their humans are there, free of pestilence and sickness, and maintain their vitality all the way until they die. So even if they're old, they still are just as vigorous and active as when they were in their prime. Old people are just as strong and durable as the young, and they're just kind of hanging out with their Adamu, their new humans. They have sex, and eight plants come from Enki's seed. The Earth Mother, Ninma, is wholly absorbed in the world of plants. And when these new plants grow, she thinks of them just like children. She loves them and cares for them in the exact same manner. Though Enki, always thirsty for knowledge, sought the secrets of the plants. He was advised in order to gain the wisdom of vegetation, he had to eat the plants, and promptly did so. Now, this really pissed off Ninma, and she instantly cursed eight of Enki's body parts, including one of his ribs. The Sumerian word for rib is tea. But then Enlil came around and was like, what the heck, why is Enki all messed up? And he convinced Ninma to heal Enki. With this magic, pretty much every time, every time she healed one of the cursed body parts, it gave birth to a new goddess. The goddess that sprung from Enki's rib is called Nin-Ti, the lady of the rib. But the Sumerian word Ti also means to make live. The name Ninti may therefore mean the lady who makes live, as well as the lady of the rib. And this is a very ancient literary pun that was uh, carried over and perpetuated in the Bible, but without its original meaning because the Hebrew word for rib and for what makes live have nothing in common with cuneiform, Sumerian. Moreover, it is Ninma who gives her life essence to heal Enki, who was then reborn. This is the original Eve story depicted in the Bible that was uh, created by Adam's rib in Genesis. This is where it was inspired and got its influence. But there's more tablets about the early days of humanity, were it not for the Amarna text, discovered all the way over in Egypt in the archives of the Egyptian king Amenhofis, we might never know about the Sumerian Adapa. But in 1912, his story was verified and confirmed by a unique discovery in the library of Ashubur Nanapal. 
five partial fragments that have since been translated were revealed to tell a part of the story called Adapa and the South Wind, which is fascinating. And I love how we continue to expand on the story of the Anunnaki through archaeology, and it just keeps uh, expanding and expanding with much more to still be discovered. And I also find it interesting how in the Sumerian tale of Eden, humans don't have original sin. They don't have original sin from eating from the tree of good and evil, but were actually saved from a hellish drone-like life of slavery by Enki, which yet again is similar to the tale of the Gnostics and the tale of Prometheus, where a divine being comes and saves humanity and grants us knowledge, grants us fire, grants us something that takes us out of our menial existence of drudgery under the gods. But back to what I was going to talk about and getting lost in the woods. In the tale Adapa and the South Wind, Adapa is extremely unique and the first of Enki and Enma's new humans. He's the prototype, fully functional conscious being that could reproduce, understand concepts of philosophy and wisdom, and even understand the concept of eternal life. In the tablets, Adapa pisses off the god Anu and is saved by the benevolent god Enki the creator of humanity and fatherly figure to us all. What's interesting is in the tale, Enki actually gives humanity the opportunity for immortality, though Adapa failed. But it's consistent with Enlil still getting sick of Enki's shit and hating humanity at this point. But the most important and interesting aspect of this myth, this tale, about Adapa is that it's the earliest deluge myth that we have on record. Enki and Ninma's humans flourished way more than the Anunnaki could have ever anticipated, and they produced far more quickly as well. There was a disconnect between heaven and earth, and not all of the Anunnaki were on board with this rising humanity. Enlil did not like Enki's fascination and love of humans. Enlil wanted an obedient slave race. He did not want a sovereign species, just robots that would worship, have devotion, and utter compliance with the laws and commands from him and the other Anunnaki. He wasn't happy Enki was messing with things that would make humans similar to the gods, or even have the potential to shine. Though still, not all of the gods looked at humans this way, Enki and many Anunnaki looked at humans as their children, and coddled and taught them and loved to watch them grow. They took responsibility for them. They took care of them and guided them, giving them wisdom. This is analogous to some people's view of the Watchers descending to Earth to give humans knowledge that, uh, that in the Book of Enoch is seen as an evil thing. But from Enlil's perspective, any helping humans was evil, and humans in general were evil dirt beneath them, beneath all the gods, beneath anything really. They were, they were just tools. They were like a hammer. They were like a rake. Enlil did not want a slave race that had education. To Enlil, anything other than humanity just performing what the gods desired was corruption. And in fact, Enlil is pretty much a dick to humans throughout the entire lore of the Sumerian Anunnaki, all the way up until way later at least. 
But Enki did not like Enlil's attitude towards his creations and was very protective of them. This didn't stop Enlil from wanting a clean slate. And since he was technically the ruler of the Anunnaki, he wanted to wipe out Enki and Ninma's humans altogether, start fresh, and have a slave race oblivious to knowledge. In their current state, Enki's humans he found far too dangerous to be left alive and to flourish, deciding to wipe all the humans out, every single last one. At first, Enlil tried plague and pestilence, but Enki gave humans an adaptable and strong immune system. Then Enlil tried famine, but humans were durable and adaptable. They suffered greatly, but they managed to survive, even resorting to cannibalism, but they survived. In any case, in the end, Enlil kind of gave up on all that and just settled on a cataclysm. He would wipe them out in a flood. But when Enlil was commanding the other gods to get the ball rolling, Enki overheard the plan and Enki was not very happy about it. Though there wasn't too much he could do. Though he did make steps to save his children and contacted a righteous man named Utnapishtim, also called Astrasis. So as the Anunnaki left Earth in what the tablets call the chariots of the gods, this man would go on to save the human race which thousands of years later would be written down by the Hebrews in their own version called Noah's Ark. And it's clear in the tablets that Sumerians did not consider themselves these pre-flood humans. They didn't think they were the first civilization, like uh, they appear to be in our mainstream world. In the Sumerian view, they were given knowledge that led to their grand civilization at the dawn of recorded human history from an extinct earlier civilization and frustratingly, there is no more knowledge from any tablets on this mysterious dead pre-cataclysm civilization. This uh, primogenitor that created the Sumerian civilization has nothing on it other than myth, but frustratingly, there is no more knowledge from any tablets that is legitimate. It's extremely fascinating how similar Sumerian myths and the Bible are and uh, Gnostics and uh, stuff like that. It's fascinating how thousands of years ago, without any access to these Sumerian texts or any knowledge of one another or any communication, they all have similar myths. Although it's interesting to note just how different the Ark is in the Sumerian myth when compared to the Hebrew myth. To many, the Ark from Noah's story, just a big normal boat, makes the flood seem kind of, well, the flood tales uh, seem kind of silly. How the hell could all the animals fit on that thing? Well, though written down by the ancients, the Ark of the Sumerian Flood seems more sci-fi and was basically a ginormous submarine. And by ginormous, I mean ginormous. You can tell that the Noah version of the Flood myth was written down by a much less sophisticated civilization. However, despite Enki's interference, Enlil did manage to destroy the majority of humanity in the Cataclysm. Though when he did figure out Enki's scheming, he was pretty infuriated. Many of the Anunnaki were just following orders, the orders of Enlil backed up by Anu. But the other side of the coin is many did start to feel bad about humans, especially the ones that had a hand in their creation and had grown to appreciate them and consider them their children. 
Enki had coordinated the Ark to land on Mount Ararat, and when the gods descended from heaven, Enlil actually decided to make peace with the humans, probably for political reasons, with all of the Anunnaki who sided with the humans and cared about them, Enlil was avoiding rebellion, or who knows. In any case, he did decide to no longer want to wipe out humans, and promised them that he wouldn't ever cause a flood ever again, though Enlil would hold a massive grudge, and did his best to smear the truth whenever he could. So the myth that was written down isn't necessarily the most accurate, because of course Enlil is going to put his own twist on it for humans to document, hence why Enki is a lot of times associated with Lucifer or just he's associated with the bad side, when he's actually the opposite. And now I want to kind of sidestep for a moment and uh, talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Though the demigods of Anunnaki and human offspring were present on the planet, they don't play as much of a role in the spotlight as they do in the books of Enoch. But they're there. They're the heroes of legend, with the oldest of which being the Epic of Gilgamesh, an Akkadian story that was adopted by the Babylonians, but very much rooted in Sumerian mythology, because the gods in the epic poem are 100% the Anunnaki, including humanity's benefactor Enki. And like all these ancient myths, many versions exist, but the 12 tablet Akkadian one is the most well-known and complete version of the oldest epic known in human history. Gilgamesh was two-thirds Anunnaki and one-third human. He was given the city of Uruk to rule since he was a Nephilim, and was pretty much a dick. His people hated him, and he oppressed them, and he was totally arrogant and uncaring for any consequence of his actions. The gods heard the prayers of Gilgamesh's people and made Enkidu, who was then sent with a specific purpose to bring Gilgamesh in line, because Nephilim were known for being basically the way the books of Enoch describe them as pretty messed up. And when Enkidu does finally reach him, Gilgamesh and Enkidu fight. They have a pretty epic battle, but eventually they become friends. And they go on all kinds of adventures together, to which Gilgamesh kind of slowly becomes more wise and a better person. One of the coolest parts of this epic is when Gilgamesh comes across Utnapishtim, the same guy from the tablets I just described during the deluge that saved humanity. And you may be thinking, how is this guy still alive? Well, that's because Enki granted him and his wife immortality, which is actually Gilgamesh's main quest. Since he's not full Anunnaki, he's not an immortal. But since this tale takes place after the fall, most Nephilim are wiped out at this time, Gilgamesh being one of the remaining few probably have to come back and do an episode on Gilgamesh and his entire epic tale sometime because it's that awesome. episode. In the next episode, we're going to set aside the tablets as historical documents and look more into 
the weird interpretations of the Anunnaki. It's going to involve aliens and all kinds of crazy stuff, so you better tune in. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, and basically all podcast hubs. If you enjoyed the show even just a little bit, please leave a good review because it really helps to grow the podcast. Let's look at a couple comments here. Stephanie Hale says, I enjoy the Nephilim episodes. Is there going to be another Nephilim episode? Well, Stephanie, obviously, here you go. And yes, we still got a couple more to go. I don't know how many more there will be, though. Amy Larson says, I have a handful of friends that I have recommended this podcast to, and I tell them you can tell when dude gets comfortable. Hearing your confidence grow is pretty great. You're my companion before I open, in the car, sometimes camping, and occasionally chilling at the house. Thanks. Well, thanks, Amy. I appreciate that. As always, make sure that you support Alternative Tech, BitChute, Rumble, Dailymotion, D2, Vimeo, as well as all the alternative social media sites as well, so that we can keep freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of anything really, expression, all alive and well. Fight corporate slash establishment censorship, government censorship, if you want a future of freedom. You'll find Cryptic Chronicles at all of these alternative tech sites, and it's for the betterment of humanity as a whole, so we should all kind of get on that. But whatever you do, make sure that you come and join the Facebook group, because it's really big and awesome, and Angie Allen would love to devour your soul. Speaking of Angie Allen, thank you patrons Angie, Paul, Ashley, Stephanie Wilkie, Leanne Watson, Linda Gonzalez, and Megan Crosswell. The destroyer of worlds. If you'd like to become one of the wisest, sages, and most intelligent, prettiest, and coolest, awesomest person who everybody loves in the universe ever in the history of time, then please support the show on Patreon. Just go to crypticchronicles.com, look at the top of the page, the homepage, and click on the Chronicler's Vault. The Chronicler's Vault is just Patreon. For just a buck a month, you can support Cryptic Chronicles and unlock all kinds of good stuff. And as a limited time offer, anyone who does support just at a buck a month to help out Cryptic Chronicles is gonna be granted immortality by the Anunnaki god Enki. So go ahead and just go click on Cryptic Chronicles Vault and then do the sacrifices necessary to bring the god into our material plane and he will grant you the immortality prize. Thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm Tim Hacker, your host, and as one of the greatest warriors who ever lived once said, In the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war.